university professors spend a lot of time talking about a lot of things with each other at academic conferences and in academic journals. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals, and I want to talk to you. Some of the most interesting thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard by people outside of the walls of academia, so I'm on a mission to bring those thoughts to you. Fabulous people, interesting ideas, brilliant conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell, and this is a hard hat area. You're on with the Deconstruction Workers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever it is you are. I am Dr. Christopher Bell. This is the Deconstruction Workers. Joining me today on the Deconstruction Workers is our old friend, Dr. Lauren Kamachi. Dr. Kamachi is out at Penn State University in Pennsylvania, and she is one of my very favorite people. And good morning, Lauren. Good morning to you, too. You're also one of my favorite people. Isn't Aww. that great how that works out? That's lovely to hear. So today what we're doing for you, dear listener, is we are going to talk a little bit about the field that both Dr. Kabachi and I are a part of, which is a field that I really feel like the average person outside of academia and even within academia, if we're being completely honest, has mm-hmm. no idea what it is that we do. And that is that we are both rhetoricians. We both study the field of rhetoric. And whether you know it or not, the field of rhetoric has an awful lot to do with culture, with popular culture, and with the way in which popular culture operates as an entity within our society. So that's sort of the setup for where I want to go today. Do you have any setup you would like to add to that? Only setup I would want to add, I think, is that most of our listeners will have heard the word rhetoric before but they've heard it in its sort of insulting version that it's something is mere rhetoric. It's empty words used to be the snake charmer. And so we who study rhetoric, it doesn't mean we just study people who talk fancy words in political situations, although that is what I study. That's not all that it, what it is. So this is in part going to be to talk about the differences between what it is that the formal study of rhetoric is and what the popular understanding of what rhetoric is, and to see how those are, they do overlap, but they're very, very different. Very different. One thing, when I told my family, hey, this is what I'm planning to do with the rest of my career, I'm going to study rhetoric, my brother said, so you're just going to ask questions nobody has any answers to? Yeah, I got that too. By the way, for those of you who use rhetorical question in that respect, as a question that doesn't have an answer. That's not what a rhetorical question is, so please stop doing that. A rhetorical question is, by definition, a question that doesn't have an answer, so it invites an argument. It's not a question that you don't want somebody to answer or that doesn't have some sort of discussion behind it. When you say this is a rhetorical question, you're inviting people to argue with you. It's what it's for. Yeah. It's like an open-ended question rather than a yes-no question. It's not some question that just floats off into the ether and nobody has to respond to it. It's a question that, by definition, demands a response. Or at least demands you to think about the different responses, whether you end up talking with them or not. I know I teach speech class, so when you begin a speech with a rhetorical question, you usually aren't necessarily going to invite the audience to participate in that moment, but you're just provoking their thoughts at the beginning. So rhetoric for setup here, rhetoric is widely understood to be 
the second oldest discipline on earth in terms of formal study. The only thing older than rhetoric is math. <laughs> Every, everything else after that, including all of the other studies at every university around the country and around the world, comes after rhetoric. So we've been engaged in the formal study of rhetoric and trying to figure out what this thing is for almost 3,000 years. Mm -hmm. Think about that for a second. Think about what you're doing today that 2,500 years from now, 2,600 years from now, people are still going to be talking about. I can't even remember what I'm supposed to be doing on Friday, let alone in 2,500 years from now. Right. The people that we talk about in terms of the formal study of rhetoric, they were discussing this a really long time ago. And just a quick note about how we're going to be discussing this history today. So... There are, when we say canons, I always tease my students. I say, we're talking canons with one end in the middle, not two. With two ends, it's the one that goes boom and the cannonball comes out. Canon, C-A-N-O-N, means pillar, tenant, central principle. So when we're talking about the canon of rhetoric, in this case, we're talking about a very Western tradition. So we're talking ancient Greece, ancient Rome, for the most part. These are not the only historical places that have their own canon of rhetoric. There are robust studies of rhetoric coming from plenty of other countries, but at the schools where Chris and I were both trained, we were trained in the Western canon of rhetoric. You say it much nicer to your students than I say it to mine. Because <laughs> what I say to my students is, hey, guess what? We're going to move the bones of dead white guys from one side of the room to the other, because that's what we do in rhetoric. <laughs> but you should understand that there are other rhetorical traditions in the world. We in the Western society just don't spend a whole lot of time talking about them. Right. So let's move the bones of dead white guys around for a little while. <laughs> what does any of this have to do with popular culture? since this is a pop culture podcast, right. I spend most of my time taking a look at argument, the nature of argument and the nature of persuasion. That is what the rhetorical tradition at its very base is. The study of communication is the exercise in the study of rhetoric. And for, like I said, almost 3,000 years, humanity has engaged in this struggle over what we might call symbolic influence, right? How one person might use the skillful use of words to persuade another person. Mm -hmm. And so what we do is we take a look at how we as a society sort of utilize words or images. Uh, there's a big field of visual rhetoric, which is largely what I do, uh, to maintain power within a society, to form social groups, to construct identities, uh, to make meaning. That's the other part of what I do, meaning making studies. We use words to shape our society, or in our field we say rhetoric is constitutive. And we also use language to chart out the territory between ourselves and other people, which is rhetoric as what we call dialogic. So there's these two sides of rhetoric and two sides of persuasion. We use rhetoric to shape our society and we use rhetoric to negotiate the territory between people. If we take that as our, as our constructive basis, all of popular culture is rhetoric. It's all persuasive. 
every movie you've ever seen, every television show you've ever watched, every action figure you've ever played with, every comic book you've ever read, every video game you've ever played, it's all trying to persuade you of something. Right. Oh, no. No, it's not. It's just entertainment. It's mm-hmm. just. It's no. just entertainment. So my favorite example to discuss this is the movie 300. Oh, I love this example. I use this too. When it came out and how the different battling nations were characterized absolutely matter in the immediate context of the beginning of the war on terror. To get sort of rah-rah, democracy must win out, to be sold to a public that wasn't super thrilled by 2006 with the fact that there weren't actually weapons of mass destruction. A, A film like 300 does a lot of work to keep up the morale of the America is in the right type of fight right now. You're either with us or you're against us. Mm-hmm. Not only that, but at the same time it's making that argument, it's also making an argument that there's a particular kind of masculinity yes. that is desirable and even heroic within our society right. and that that should be celebrated even if you don't ascribe to that certain kind of masculinity. I mean, I walked into that theater doing the work that I do, knowing the things that I know, being the person that I am, and I still left that theater like, yeah, because you're supposed to. If you're a man in that movie, you're supposed to. Or even if you're a person who desires males and you don't really desire those sort of rippling muscles like that, you still walk out being like, That's the correct type of man. That's a heroic man. And it also teaches you to fear other types of masculinity because of who gets demonized in the film as well. So even though, yes, it's just a historical story about the Battle of Thermopylae, it's doing a lot more work than that if you read it within its context and within how the message is being represented. It's explicitly not a historical text about the Battle of Thermopylae. Right. The film 300 bears very little resemblance to the actual historical event, but that's on purpose. It's on purpose because the function of that film is not to teach you the history of this battle. Right. You don't go to the movies to learn history. A lot of historians talk about that. You go to see an artist's representation of this event. We talked about this when we talked about Hamilton. I love Hamilton, but Hamilton is not a historical... It'll give you the bare bones of it, but if you actually want to learn the history, that's not going to be good enough. They, uh, you know, leave some stuff out. Yes. (laughs) Like slavery, for example, or that nobody was black. So there's that. So rhetoric as a field of study has a lot to offer the study of popular culture, Mm -hmm. which both of us do to some extent. I mean, our professional work, your professional work and my professional work is not always necessarily about the most popular aspects of popular culture. Mm -hmm. I mean, you study... Presidential rhetoric. Presidential rhetoric. I study visual rhetoric. Mm Mm-hmm. I thought that's maybe what we could talk about today. So if I if I might, I would say that one of the ways that I always see my work as being part popular culture when I'm working with my presidential rhetoric stuff is that the president is a pop culture icon. The president has since the first president, since George Washington, has been a popular culture icon. If you look back, I know that my advisor at Penn State, the gentleman who advised my dissertation work, has a book coming out on 
how the public celebrated the first inauguration of George Washington and the ways that popular culture was deployed, ceremonial plates and window art and all kinds of things that were associated with the president. In other ways, you could even see that presidential speeches themselves are popular culture events. So the Nixon, the trials about the Watergate hearings were some of the most watched pieces of programming in the 70s. That's a popular culture event. The most telling example of the president as popular culture happened in the late 1840s. I tell my students this story all the time. I think I told this story on this podcast once before. There's a guy. He's from New Hampshire. He's the son of a state senator. He's kind of a rich playboy kind of guy. Has a lot of money, throws his dad's money around quite a bit. He's basically a Kardashian. And he decides that he wants to run for president of the United States. And nobody knows who he is, and he's not really that good of a politician. So he goes to his dad, and he gets his dad to pull some strings and get him a spot on stage at the Democratic National Convention. Mm -hmm. So now you have to understand that the Democrats at the time are the Republicans of today. Right. The political parties were flipped back then. The Democrats are are the conservatives. Mm -hmm. So he, he wants the conservative party nomination. His dad pulls some strings, gets him on stage at the Democratic National Convention. His opponents at the Democratic National Convention are Stephen Douglas, you know, Lincoln Douglas debates Stephen Mm -hmm. Douglas and James Buchanan and James Buchanan may or may not have been our first gay president. We don't know. (laughs) Nobody knows still to this day. So our hero goes on stage at the Democratic National Convention and is like, are you going to vote for this gay dude or are you going to vote for this midget? Stephen Douglas is four foot 11 inches tall. Hey, no hating on four foot 11. Yes, but in presidential debates, uh, that's yeah, a problem. No, I know. Uh, physical representations of your masculinity are right. important. I'm just very diminutive in size, which is why, dear listener, I'm <laughs> taking umbrage with that comment. So you should all understand Lauren is very close to four foot 11 inches tall. Yes. So are you going to vote for this gay dude? Are you going to vote for this midget? Are you going to vote for me? And everybody votes for him. And Mm -hmm. so he gets the nomination to be the president, but nobody knows who he is. But he happens to be college drinking buddies with a guy named Nathaniel Hawthorne, who is the biggest name in popular culture in the world at the time. Right. That dude wrote Scarlet Letter, Mm -hmm. you know, which we still make today. If you've seen Easy A with Emma Stone, that's, that's him. And he also wrote The House of Seven Gables. So House of Seven Gables is every Amityville horror story you've ever seen where the house is the enemy. So he gets the nomination. He goes to his friend Nathaniel Hawthorne. He's like, hey, can you hook me up? And Nathaniel Hawthorne writes a book called The Life of Franklin Pierce. And this is huge. It's huge. It's the big, it's be like if you knew, you know, J.K. Rowling and she was like Harry Potter and here's why you should be president. <laughs> it's big. It's really big. Yeah. So... The Life of Franklin Pierce is a book that is chock full of lies. It is just one giant lie from beginning to end. One piece of propaganda. One giant piece of propaganda. And it's so big that, you know, nobody knows who he is when he gets the nomination. And by November of that same year, he carries 27 of the 31 states and becomes the president. And the funny part about that is Franklin Pierce was, up until, you know, two years ago, 
widely considered by most historians to be the worst president in the history of the country. (laughs) The worst. Nathaniel Hawthorne turns Franklin Pierce into the next great hope for America. And and everyone votes for him, and he totally sucks at his job. Everyone talks about how Abraham Lincoln ends the Civil War. Nobody talks about how Franklin Pierce starts the Civil War. Mm. Because he's actively pushing the South to secede. Right. You know, nobody talks about how he's the only sitting president in American history not to get his own party's nomination for re-election. Wow. (laughs) The Democrats, he's sitting in the White House. The Democrats nominate James Buchanan and James Buchanan wins. Yeah. And becomes the president. Right. That's how bad at being the president he is. So the reason I tell my students that story is that's the power of rhetoric. In the presidential context, right? I mean, that's popular culture. That's, he's our first media president. He's the first president to get elected on the strength of the media he could generate, the PR that he could generate. Yeah. That's presidential popular culture in a nutshell right there. Because it's it harnessed the power of a widely read author at a time when readership was increasing in the public. Yeah, but not only that, I mean, there's no internet, there's no television, there's no radio, newspaper. Right. Well, that's I mean, he used new media, the new media of the time to really work. So new media, that is larger scale access to print yep. and a very popular author in the same way that you see FDR harness radio, that you see, you know, various presidential candidates pick up on new JFK with television. The way Obama gets elected via the internet. Yeah, right. Franklin Pierce is the first president to do that, and every single president after him, that's how you get elected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is why Bill Clinton goes on, what, the, was it Tonight Show? On the Arsenio Hall Show, yeah. Arsenio Hall is the saxophone. This is why, you know, Obama goes and shoots basketballs with, uh, was it with Jim, was it with the Tonight Show then? One of them was on the Tonight uh, Show. Yeah, I think that might have been Jimmy Fallon. Yeah, it's why Nixon, in all his uncool glory, goes on and delivers the socket to me line on what laughing. Laughing. It's also yeah. why George H.W. Bush, first Bush, Bush number one, it's mm. why he gets his tail kicked. Because mm. Bill Clinton goes on MTV and is like, hey, kids, vote for me. And George H.W. Bush refuses to go on MTV, says it's beneath him, does not consider that a, a voting block or a voting constituency at all. And MTV's Rock the Vote literally changes the face of the election in 1992. And that was, and that's, you know, that was similar to Nixon in 60 versus Nixon in 68, because he wouldn't embrace television and then finally realized he had to embrace television to get the younger audience like Kennedy did to beat him in 16. So sidebar here, since this is, we're, we're, doing the thing that people are probably like, what the hell does this have to do with rhetoric? Right. So when in ancient Greece, there were two ways of conversing, essentially there was rhetoric and there was dialectic rhetoric itself. And you jump in on the definition of dialectic. Cause I don't do ancient as much, but sure. rhetoric was rhetoric. You jo- do dialectic. Then I'll do rhetoric. Cause it's, there's a funny definition that I think is important. Okay. So my understanding as a scholar is that, Rhetoric and dialectic were oppositional forces, particularly Mm -hmm. for guys like Socrates, right? Mm -hmm. Dialectic is conversation that is designed to come to 
agreement, understanding. It's designed to come to some greater truth. That's what mm-hmm. that's what Socrates used it for. He was yes. on this big search for capital T truth about yeah. the universe. And that's what dialectics purpose was. It was argumentation for the purposes of coming together to reach a common agreement and seek a higher truth. Rhetoric was everything else. Right. <laughs> and that's what the, and so that's why what we study is so difficult to understand, especially outside of those who work on it, because it has such extreme variety. A lot of folks look at it and say, well, I don't understand how this isn't history or English or political science, or I don't understand how it's its own thing. So that's why we've been able to talk about movies in one breath, presidential history in another, because it it all falls under studying. The thing that unifies it is we study the persuasion that's happening. Dialectic's job is to come to agreement. Rhetoric's job is to win an argument. Rhetoric was competitive by nature. And by competitive by nature, I mean sport. In ancient Greece, you would get these two guys, and it was always guys. Except for Aspasia. Except, yes. On that, see Corey Garretts' work on Aspasia <laughs> and Cheryl Glenn's work on Aspasia. Yes. In case you're interested. Plug. But we don't, we don't talk about her. We talk right. about Gorgias and Phaedrus and the, you know. Yeah. The prize fighters of the day. Yeah. Whose job it was to go to an arena, an amphitheater stand on a dais and literally argue against each other until one person won. Yep. And oftentimes how you knew one person won and the other person lost is people would start throwing stuff at the other person. <laughs> <laughs> this is where this is where our tradition of like throwing rotten f- fruit and tomatoes and stuff at people comes from is cuz people yeah. would just start throwing stuff at you until when you were losing. It was competitive by nature, you mm-hmm. know. Gorgias made an entire living off of people betting on him in the amphitheater. And this is, and thank you for bringing up Gorgias because this is what in the ancient world distinguished ethical from unethical uses of rhetoric. So Aristotle would have considered Gorgias to be a charlatan, someone who would sell his rhetorical teachings and skills at persuasion to whoever could pay for it. That would have been considered unethical because he wasn't using it simply to pursue the truth in the dialectical realm. He was considered unethical. Socrates writes entire volumes about how much he hates Gorgias. Right. Because they're contemporaries. They're at the same time. Yeah. So it's kind of the way that I find Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People kind of an icky book. Because it feels like teaching people tricks to sort of subvert ethical persuasion. Gorgias... Gorgias was really fun in that he had no rules whatsoever. He was he was the old school cage fighter of rhetoric in that he would lie to you. He would make stuff up. He had this philosophy that now modern rhetoricians think he was actually messing around with people like he was trolling. Mm. But at the time, people took very seriously, which was, he would say to you, nothing exists. Nothing exists. Because you can't prove that it does. Mm -hmm. For example, I have a wife and a daughter. I know I have a wife and a daughter, but I can't see them right now. I can't hear them. They're not here. 
it's at the time of this recording, it's the middle of the day. So my kid is at school. My wife is teaching class. I feel like they exist, but I have literally no proof right this second that they exist. Mm-hmm. I, I have no proof that the second they leave my line of sight, they don't disappear and only reappear when I can see them. Because of that, nothing exists. And then he would say, even if something did exist, you'd have no ability to understand why. Mm-hmm. How do I know you exist? I just do. But you could be the evil robots. Like, I could be the only real person and everyone around me could be an evil robot, and I would have no way of knowing that. And even if I did know it, I couldn't explain it to anybody else. So even if I did know everyone around me was the evil robots or that my family doesn't disappear when I don't see them anymore, how on earth would I possibly explain that to anyone? And he would use this three-step process. Nothing exists. Even if it does exist, you couldn't know it. And even if you did know it, you couldn't explain it. He would use that to just beat down your argument. Because everything you say, he would just say, prove it. Which is one of the reasons, I mean, this kind of argument has been what has, it has continued through the 2,500 years since this discipline started and has been sort of the fuel behind the fire of people saying, this is why we can't trust people trying to persuade you of stuff. This is why rhetoric is bad. Mm -hmm. This is what gets Socrates in trouble for teaching kids rhetoric in the first place. Right. Because some of it is, well, yeah, unethical. It's unethically able to be used, used for destruction, not for empowerment or goodness or anything. I think unethical probably is the right word. Yes. But I mean, the reason that it's a problem that people don't trust rhetoric is folks are showing an understanding of rhetoric when they revise a curriculum to make sure they're reaching students better about a certain subject in history or how you change how you teach a certain lesson to make something clearer when it wasn't clear because you've been able to realize you're not being you're not reaching your audience. You're not persuading them that this is the way you should learn about a thing, right? It ranges. This is how certain people are able to have their messages get heard more effectively than other people. It means they're, they're good at what they do. Of course, there's other factors, but knowing how to, how to read an audience and respond in a way that will be motivating for that audience, that's rhetoric. The other thing that is rhetoric is the understanding that... A work, and this this gets me in trouble with my sociology friends quite a bit, but a work can argue independently of its author. Yes, this gets me into trouble too. So a person creates a thing with an idea of an argument, but that's not necessarily the argument that that creation makes. Right. And sometimes a creation can argue in opposition to what the author is trying to argue. Do you have a favorite example of this phenomenon? I do have a favorite example of this phenomenon. I would argue and have argued pretty extensively that the argument that most television, most films, most comic books, most video games try to make about the nature of gender is argued in the exact opposite by those creations themselves. What I mean by that is that 
take Harry Potter, for example, since we're Potter people. Yes. You've you've made you've heard me make this argument on many occasions. Harry Potter is the least important part of the Harry Potter series. <laughs> Harry Potter is all of the things we are supposed to value in a western hero. He is young, he is white, he is male, he is straight, he is rich. He's all the things we're supposed to latch on to. The text itself argues in the opposite direction. That is, everyone else around Harry is infinitely more important than Harry himself. And at the top of that list is Hermione Granger. Right, I was going to say, the what's the funny retitling of the first book? Hermione Granger and My Friends Are Morons. That's the first book. Yeah. Hermione Granger and I Already Had the Answer 20 Minutes Ago. That's the second <laughs> book. Hermione Granger and That's My Time Turner, Jerk. Yeah. That's she, the third she book. She butts the whole entire time. The yeah. entire time. That's a work arguing in opposition to the message that we're supposed to get. This is the difference between, as we've talked about several times on this show, between preferred reading and alternate reading. Yeah. Alternate reading is when you find the work saying things that the author probably didn't want that work to say, or at least didn't know that the work was going to say. What I thought about when you were talking about this initially was Catcher in the Rye. Interesting. You know, J.D. Salinger didn't tell that shooter to think about the book and decide that that meant he should go shoot John Lennon. Ah, yeah. Yeah, that is a good example. That person in reading the book gleaned something different from the text that made him identify with Holden Caulfield and away he went. I'm in the middle of writing a piece right now about, some of you know because you heard the episode with Dustin Dunaway in the first season, that I'm really into professional wrestling. It's one of my major research artifacts. Um, in the middle of writing a piece right now about what happens when fans decide they are not going to go with the story. Oh, yeah. I like when we about this. When the story is arguing to them in a way that the authors don't want it to. And the fans revolt. As of this recording right now, this week that happened. Hmm. So for about a year now, the WWE has been pushing ronda rousey as their main event star ronda rousey has tons of mainstream attention she's a former mma fighter legitimate shoot fighter she was a former champion she's been profiled on espn and in sports illustrated she was a big deal outside of professional wrestling Mm -hmm. she comes into professional wrestling and wwe pushes her and everybody sort of latches onto her as yay we really like ronda rousey meanwhile There's another woman, Becky Lynch, who the fans have always really liked. And about seven, eight months ago, she did what's called turning heel. That is, she moved from being a good guy to being a bad guy. Mm -hmm. Except when they moved her to being a bad guy, everyone kept cheering her Hmm. because she was one of the most popular people in the company. And the more they tried to push her as a bad guy, the more fans just cheered her. They love Becky Lynch. Hmm. And her first promo, her first interview in the ring, as a bad guy, she tried to say, the fans don't support me and have never supported me and whatever. And the fans were cheering so loud that in the middle of that promo, she had to stop saying that because it was clear she was reading from a script 
(laughs) because the people in the, in the arena were doing the exact opposite. Right. So she dropped that line of argument of rhetoric. She dropped that line of rhetoric and hasn't returned to it since. But every week since then, the fans have gotten more and more vocal about her. Hmm. So this weekend, there was the annual event called the Royal Rumble. It's the, ah. it's the second biggest wrestling event of the year behind WrestleMania. Right. And at the Royal Rumble, Becky Lynch lost in the opening match. And everyone mm. was like, boo, that really sucks. Then, later in the main event, there was the big Royal Rumble. It's this 30-woman event. It's a battle royal. 30 people are fighting at the same time, whatever. The second-to-last entrant into it was Becky Lynch. And the roof blew off the building. People were screaming and cheering, and it was crazy. And then she won the Royal Rumble. Oh, boy. And they basically tore the house down. So then the next night, they always have, the next show is always live in the same city, because they don't want to move all the stuff. So the Monday night show, the night after Royal Rumble, Becky Lynch comes out and stands face-to-face with Ronda Rousey. And they booed Ronda Rousey out of the building. And they've been pushing her for a year as the crowd favorite. And people were cheering so loud for Becky Lynch and booing Ronda Rousey so loud that when Rousey leaves the ring, if you slow the tape down, which I did, you can clearly see by the time she gets to the top of the ramp, she is almost in tears. I would have been. I feel bad. I mean, she could kick anybody's butt, but I still am sitting over here going, oh, don't boo her. That's not (laughs) They They booed her they were gonna burn the building down they booed her so badly and they cheered for becky lynch louder than i've seen them cheer for anyone in years so based on how the wwe has has adapted their script based on the fan favoritism of becky lynch do you feel like they're going to probably have to do another major pivot now that this has happened because this is obviously pretty Major. Well, yeah, and they're pushing this fight towards WrestleMania as the main event. Okay. It'll be the first main event in WrestleMania history that's two women. And so oh. they're trying to turn it into this sort of history-making moment. Everyone involved in professional wrestling as a fan knows that this is where this is headed. So mm-hmm. what they thought they were going to be able to do is really popular Ronda Rousey versus really popular Becky Lynch Everyone will cheer and everyone will be happy about it. Where the oppositional reading comes in, where the the text arguing in a way that the authors don't want it to is happening is fans decided Becky's the good guy and Rhonda's the bad guy, whether you want Rhonda to be the bad guy or not. Right. And so whether or not WWE pivots and just turns Rhonda into a bad guy or just lets her get cheered against everyone who isn't Becky Lynch remains to be seen. So that would be a moment where the WWE as an author, as script writers for this show, if they, whatever decision they make, they are responding to what they see in the audience with the ultimate goal of, right? More people cheering means more people paying for stuff, Right. right? If their ultimate goal is to get more viewership and more people buying merchandise and things like that, you know, buying stuff off of them, 
if that's the ultimate goal, they recognize that they would need to adapt based on the situation they find themselves in. That's being able to be rhetorically nimble. Yes, exactly. That's being able to adjust rhetoric on the fly. Because seen when people refuse to alter the course, it doesn't go well. No, it does not. As we can see every day on our televisions in the news and whatnot. Let's take a short break here. We'll be back in two and two. Did you know that the Deconstruction Workers podcast has a Patreon page? Well, we do. We have a Patreon page. It is www.patreon.com slash podcast DCW. You can donate as little as $1 a month towards keeping the lights on, and we would really appreciate your support. So click on over to www.patreon.com slash podcast DCW and pledge your support if you enjoy what you're hearing. Now, back to the show. One thing that I do want to stress here, and it's something I stress to my students all the time, is the reason it matters that we talk about rhetoric and how rhetoric works, how rhetoric functions, is because we are a society that is incredibly bad at arguing as a whole. And it seems counterintuitive at the moment because all anybody's do is haul and rand each other right now. But that's, that's not, not an arguing. Argument. Yeah. I, I scream at you and you scream at me is not a an argument in the way that the word argument has been used for, you know, 3,000 years. Right. I always tell my students, you have to make a good argument. They're like, but I'm very non-confrontational. I'm like, okay, okay, time out. That's not what that means. And I'm right. telling you to holler at us, right? I'm telling you, you need to present facts and your good reasons behind the things that you're thinking through and talking through so that we understand why we too should think the way you think. I always start my first class off in rhetoric saying, you will never persuade anyone of anything ever. <laughs> no one has ever persuaded anyone of anything in the history of mankind ever. All you will ever be able to do is to maybe move someone a little bit in your direction. That's the best that you can hope for. And once you understand that, you'll understand why we are such a bad culture at arguing. Because we think we're going to win, and you're never going to win. There's no such thing as winning an argument. It doesn't exist. Or at least go through your argument assuming that that's the way that it's going to work out. There's no way, there's no way to win an argument. Yeah. We are, by our very nature, our instincts are designed to reject information we don't think we already have. Psychological reactants. It's that wall that goes, I, the, my, my way of explaining psychological reactants, this phenomenon to my students is it's the reason you cross to the other side of the road when you see someone handing out pamphlets. Right. You don't want new information. Yeah. You don't want it to encroach on your individual ability to think and act for yourself. When someone tells you something and it's something you've never heard before, it's not like you go, thank you, kind sir. I will take that information and I will assimilate it into the way that I see the world and perhaps change my entire way of thinking. You go, no, you're full of crap. And then you walk on. That's the reality of who we are as a people. Mm -hmm. That is why traditional argument is so important. 
It's such an important skill to learn and it's such an important skill to know how it works. Mm -hmm. Because if the goal posts have shifted from I'm going to persuade you and change your mind to I'm going to argue and I'm going to influence the way that you think, the quality of argument has to be exponentially better. Right. Right. And it's not. As evidenced by every single person talking on your television on every news station right this minute. Right. Because traditional arguments aren't exciting. And television, no. I think it's if you think news programs are there just to give you the news, you're wrong. They're there to get your money through ratings and right. advertising. So they're meant to be not just informative, they're meant to be entertaining. And not only are traditional arguments not exciting, but traditional arguments are not intended for the audience member to completely come to your conclusion. Mm -hmm. They're just not. That's not the way they're designed. A great example of this is flip through a Lincoln-Douglas debate. Those things are tedious. Yes. They are dull. And they had to have, what, seven of them or more? It was way more than seven to, to get to... I mean, the ultimate thesis was you should support me, Lincoln, or me, Douglas, but... They had a huge series of these, so it's not like it was intended for you to walk away from the first one like you do now after three presidential debates be like, that's the next president. Because they knew there was more argument to come. Right. Because an actual argument takes time to craft. Right. There is no argument. There is no argument that can be made in a 15-second soundbite. And the way that we craft argument is using rhetoric. Yes. That's why it matters. I mean, I went to an academic conference and argued that the reason people like My Little Pony so much, the French Biz Magic, is because it actually formulates a classical Aristotelian argument. That's the why people like it, is because it's such a solid foundation for making the argument it wants to make, which is that it's better to be friends with people than to not be friends with people. Right. I think it would be worthwhile to talk about the way that we deploy our study of rhetoric in our non-Harry Potter work and in our Harry Potter work so we could give some concrete examples of what we study and why we consider it rhetorical criticism in how we do it. I think that's a great idea. Do you want me to start? Yes. Okay. So I am a political rhetorician, so I study political rhetoric, and I'm also a critical masculinity scholar. So that means I'm a type of feminist and women's studies scholar that focuses specifically on studying men and masculinities from the perspective of being males and, and masculinities. So I'm not looking at them in relationship to women. I'm looking at it in, in its own right. There's a pretty robust body of literature on this subject, and it's but it is a subset of women's studies and feminist studies. So I wrote my dissertation on Richard Nixon and his presidential rhetoric as being emblematic of a certain type of mainstream masculinity during the years that he was president and how what he said on issues of space, war, and the Watergate situation were all ways that he was re-articulating white male dominance in a moment when black rights, women's rights, queer rights, and all these other social movements were boiling over, right, in the in the late 60s and early 70s. 
So I study speeches on issues that are not actually about masculinities, but how does he use those moments to articulate white masculinity as still a dominant social force in the changing political climate of the United States during that time. So that is how you deploy rhetoric in your non-Harry Potter related stuff. Correct. Correct. I'm studying the discourse that this person produced as a president. So it was a popular piece of discourse at the time because the president is a popular person. And I look at what he says and how he's persuasive and how what he's talking about is not just influencing space, war and Watergate, but also gender in the United States. Within my Harry Potter stuff, I am still a rhetorical critic. I'm still taking a speech text or a written text and picking at it to see what's in there. So in the Harry Potter stuff, I'm still doing rhetorical criticism. I'm also still usually doing critical masculinities work, but not always. The thing that I always will be doing is looking at the text and seeing what's in there. So currently of interest for me, something I'll be presenting on when Chris and I get to hang out at a conference later in February, is going to be how swear words are deployed with increasing frequency over the Harry Potter series and how that relates to the erosion of morality during wartime and the non-secular nature of the books themselves, how they are, they have religion even though they're not religious. Harry Potter's not about religion, but what's in the text is also able to speak to religion. That's what I get from a rhetorical perspective. So that's how rhetoric is being used in two very different contexts within your work. Yes. So for me, I study consumer rhetoric and femininity studies, critical femininity studies, which is a thing Lauren and I laugh about quite a bit often. So just as she studies masculinity and maleness within rhetoric in and of itself, not in relation to women, I study critical femininity studies. That is, it's a form of feminist rhetoric that looks at the way that women are constructed and portrayed within popular culture texts and what argument that makes for how we treat women, how we teach girls to become women, and how we teach men and boys about women and how to treat women. Mm-hmm. So what I look at is both empowerment rhetorics and what I have begun to refer to as toxic femininity, which is a thing we don't talk about a lot. We talk tons about toxic masculinity, but we rarely talk about toxic femininity and it exists and it's just as damaging. Yeah. So outside of Harry Potter, what I'm looking at is, as I said, I'm looking at a lot of professional wrestling, which at one point was perhaps the most misogynistic space in popular culture for women. And then I'm looking at the switch that has happened both within the WWE, which is the biggest wrestling organization on the planet right now, and in other smaller venues as well. Mm -hmm. I also look at femininity rhetorics within superhero narratives. So what does it mean to be a female superhero? I look at critical femininity within children's television, because I'm a children's media specialist, so I look at it within children's television. So I'm involved in this big study of what kinds of messages get sent, what kinds of arguments get made about girlhood 
to the nine to 12 year old audience of the Disney channel. Mm. I've been involved in this study for about a year. The book is finally coming together actually for about two years. The book is finally coming together right now. I should be able to, you know, turn it into the publisher by the end of this semester. And it's really taking a look at what different kinds of television shows said about being a girl on the Disney channel, Mm -hmm. going all the way back to uh, the first show I look at is Hillary Duff's show and, and sort of working our way forward from there. So going back to the early, to the late nineties, early two thousands coming forward. Right. So that's what I do outside of Harry Potter within Harry Potter. What I do is I plant a flag on a hill and I say Hermione Granger is the most important character in this narrative. And I have been doing that for eight years now, nine years now. Or the women are the more important characters. The women are the more important characters, but there's a... We talk about Ginny, too. Hermione's at the top. Mm -hmm. Ginny comes a very close second. Luna comes a very close third. And we move our way down from there. Mm -hmm. And so this has been my my wheelhouse last year, I talked about how the adaptation of book Jenny into film Jenny disempowers the character. It was a devastating blow to book Jenny. Yes. The way that movie Jenny operates is a, a pale shadow of the empowerment narrative of book Jenny. And is more similar to the sorts of female sidekicks that you get in a lot of TV and film narratives. Right. She she becomes uh, the weak sister. She becomes... The romantic interest. I actually refer to her as a MacGuffin <laughs> for the second half of the Harry Potter film series. Mm. She is not an actual person. She's just a thing Harry wants. Yeah. Um, whereas in the book, that is not true at all. No. So uh, these are arguments. There's an argument about the nature of femininity in all of these different texts. And what I look at is how is that argument being made? What are the elements of that argument? And what is the efficacy of that? Are are these good arguments and are they connecting with audiences either positively or negatively for the, for the betterment of society or in many cases for the detriment of society. Right. And I know for a lot of people, I'm not speaking for everyone because I learned aggressive humility during my time in graduate school. But I would say that by and large, a lot of our work is especially rhetorical criticism. We're not saying this is the one correct reading of this thing. Right. For By and large, we're saying, let's look at a specific, we would use the word artifact. So book, speech, movie, object, what have you. And how do we look at it from this particular angle? And what can it tell us about this particular artifact and what can it tell us about the world in which it was created it would actually be the exact opposite it would be antithetical to rhetorical criticism to say this is the one way to look at this thing yeah but i think some people would still probably be no no my reading's right no i agree with you I, i think if you're doing true rhetorical criticism at the end of the day What you're doing is you're inviting an argument. You're saying, this is my argument for how to read this text. What do you got? Yeah, here's my evidence from the text that I have found. Let's engage with it further to see what we've got. And it's what we do. We argue. We go to a conference every February and we argue for three days. About a book series that's 20 years old. 
And even those of us who have been together for the whole time we've been doing this, for this whole seven, eight years we've been doing this, mm-hmm. we argue with each other all the time still. There are things still, and Lauren and I tend to be on the same page about lots of things, but there are still things that even the two of us argue about every yeah, single what's year. What's the best movie? What's the best movie, for example? But I mean, even rhetorically within the within the text, there are things we argue about. The nature of Ron Weasley, for yes, example. Yes, and I'm, I'm very biased towards Ron and... Lauren tends to be very pro-Ron. I tend to be very anti-Ron. Yes. So that, for example, we come at it from two very different. She for she forgives a lot of his white privilege foibles. She's being a horrible racist. And I do not. Yeah. I don't know if I would go with forgives so much as I feel, feel there are other things about him that make him a worthwhile character. But <laughs> see, this is right. the point. Neither of us is trying to win this argument. We are trying to use our individual abilities to make arguments in favor of our case to try and become smarter about this shared thing. So we've reached that point that we always reach, which is at the end of the day, rhetoric, what? We all think we know what it is. Most of us don't actually know what it is, but it really is pretty much everything that we do, especially if you're doing it right. I think that's perfect. (laughs) I would say rhetoric, everyone's bad at it. Everyone thinks they're good at it, and that's why they're bad at it. And that's why we should study it. And that's why we should study it, so that fewer people are bad at it, and more people understand that they are bad at it. (laughs) Very good. So, dear listeners, I don't know if we've come to any greater clarity for you in terms of how rhetoric works or what rhetoric does, but at least you understand a little bit more about how it's used in the professional context and how scholars kick it around and our contact information is on the website so we'd be happy to try and engage with you further if you've got some questions this is what we do for a living it is you can feel free to jump into our facebook group and ask any questions that you might have and we will respond there or send us an email at the deconstruction workers at gmail.com and we'll try to get back to you there as well yeah. So for Dr. Lauren Kamachi, I am Dr. Christopher Bell. This has been the Deconstruction Workers. Thanks for hanging out with me today, Lauren. Thank you. And we will see you next time. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcast fix feel free to check out the deconstructionworkers.com. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the deconstruction workers or Twitter at podcast DCW. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can donate as little as a dollar a month towards keeping the lights on at www.patreon.com slash podcast DCW. The deconstruction workers is recorded on the beautiful university of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for the Deconstruction Workers was composed by Raphael Crux. As always, please support alternative scholarship and public engagement. The Deconstruction Workers is copyright 2018, all rights reserved.